Well, what is our response? I think I've always been better at uh, diagnosis than prescription, and um, to some extent a fitter title for this talk might be um, what practical difficulties we face as we try to respond. <coughs> I remember after I published The Christian Mind in 1963, I received a flood of letters, um, lots of them asking, what shall we do? Not all, of course. I remember a touching one from a university chaplain, chaplain saying that he had been most deeply affected by what I had to say about the loneliness of the thinking Christian. Well, I suppose if he felt just a little less lonely, that was something achieved. Um, but um, I think I must take up that point a bit later on in, in my talk. Mm. It's difficult to speak about one's own experience as a writer without sounding self-centred. I don't know whether... It's a peculiar vice of writers. I used to think in the old days when I listened to... Um, you know, the desert island discs. So I noticed that people, opera stars, used to come out, especially the women, as being particularly modest and good-humoured and unassuming. And and the writers, and especially the men, always seemed to come out as eaten up with conceit and uh, and vanity. There's something about writing that does this to you. Um, well. Um, I, nevertheless, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my own experience in that respect. Um, the Christian mind caused quite a stir, and it produced a flood of invitations to give talks, far more indeed than I could handle. You see, it so happened that the Christian mind came out just three weeks after John Robinson's Honest to God, which, of course, created an enormous sensation. And my book began to be treated as some sort of reply to Robinson. This had some disturbing consequences. I sometimes found myself requested to take part in ding-dong debating sessions. You know the sort of thing where having a distinguished speaker to elucidate the new theology for us, will you come along too and present a critique of it from the orthodox angle? Well, this sort of thing sounded innocent enough until I got there and discovered what it meant that Professor so-and-so or Dean so-and-so was to enthuse ecstatically about the breakthrough from superstition represented by the new theology, and I was to be the stooge who would plaintively mouth the tedious, outdated, high-bound stuff that the, the bright spirits of the new age were up against. Well, this seemed to be the general idea. If, in some respects, it came as rather a shock. I, I'd always assume myself that orthodoxy had a kind of institutional status, but the current situation seemed to turn everything topsy-turvy. The professor of theology or the dean or even the bishop was to be the spokesman for the new heresies, bringing all the authority of their office to corroborate their case while I, an amateur and a layman, was called upon to defend orthodoxy as though it didn't deserve anybody better. Well, what I'm trying to get at is this, that liberalism had begun to effect such a takeover of the English religious scene that 
theological orthodoxy had no status. I hope you know how I'm using the word status, not in a social sense, but uh, as uh, something uh, commanding respect and uh, possessing authority and so on. Well, well, perhaps I could illustrate this in another way. When I came up to Cumbria 14 years ago, I was asked would I act as tutor of some candidates on the the course for the non-stipendiary ministry. Well, naturally, I asked what the course was about, and uh, the uh, canon in charge of the course, who later became a bishop, gave me a picture of the syllabus, um, and it really was... Uh, uh, in fact, he provided me with a recommended book list. Well, I frankly, I thought it terrible. I can't remember the details now, but it seemed to me that any and every phony assault on traditional Christian belief and practice was represented in the list, while what I should have considered the appropriate solid stuff was scarcely to be found there. So I said what I thought as politely as I could, and, and that was that. Um, one doesn't meet that kind of situation everywhere. I've been over to the USA on lecture tours on eight occasions since um, in, in the last ten years and um, I find the Christian mind used as a prescribed text in college theology courses in uh, seminaries and in church discussion groups and one speaks to an audience um, with knowledge of one's work um, but I found that in this country I was requested rather to plug the work of the people I'd spend my writing life attacking. Uh, it, the whole thing seemed to me ironic in the extreme. Well, well this should be a warning of what uh, you're all up against. Uh, I once argued in an article in the Church Times that the English are allergic to Christianity. In that case, I made the comparison with Ireland noting, of course, that C.S. Lewis was an Irishman and um, that his vigorous elucidation of straightforward Christian orthodoxy irritated and antagonized the Oxford academic establishment. I remember once Lewis was talking about an encounter he'd had at a conference with some liberal-minded clergy and he suddenly turned to me and said, with very great feeling, you don't know how I'm hated. Well, it's true. Oxford Dons objected to Lewis not for becoming a Christian but for advertising the fact. Religion was a private matter. Lewis's way of putting intellectual and moral pressure on people for the purpose of converting them was a kind of offence against academic etiquette. Unspoken rules of English decorum required one to be secretive about religious conviction. One must remember, of course, in this connection that Lewis had no degree in theology and was therefore, in the eyes of some, trespassing into other people's rightful territory, an amateur taking on the experts. Plainly, professional academic theologians couldn't be expected to enjoy the prospect of their thunder being stolen. And Lewis did appeal to a vast audience over the heads of the university establishment and in defiance of academic protocol. In the eyes of some critics, he was using a donnish know-how to mesmerize the masses with dialectical conjuring tricks. Well, an example such as this makes us realize that 
whatever we are about today, we are not in the business of making ourselves popular. I mean, as Christians, of course, we know that Lewis was right to do what he did. The message of the New Testament is unmistakable in this respect. The disciples were ordered to preach the gospel throughout the world, and there was no mention of their need to graduate in theology first. And by comparison, of course, with what Lewis had to tell the world, the protocol of even the most exalted university was trivial and petty. Nevertheless, the offence was an irritating one for the Oxford academic mind. It was all very well to use the machinery of logic in playful exercise. It was good fun to manufacture syllogisms in the privacy of the tutorial room to sharpen the mind. And it was good sport to bring logic into play in a spirit of self-mockery in public debate, whether on the floor of the Union or elsewhere, on such propositions as this house believes that a woman's place is in the home. But in these circumstances, dialectical battle could be joined and a jolly good time had by all. But here was a fellow Lewis who took the machinery of logic and soberly, devastatingly proved that even dons were miserable sinners, that God was calling them to get down on their knees and confess themselves such, for everything else they were involved in was trivial by comparison. The man had a perfect right to believe this secretly, and even to share his strange notions with his own friends in decent privacy, but he had no right at all to enter the public arena as writer and broadcaster, use the verbal and dialectical equipment of the Oxford scholar and philosopher to press such a message upon others. The take-it-or-leave-it attitude was vulgar. The either-or dichotomy was a lapse from good taste. In the field of religious argument into which Lewis had entered, the polite method was to express every opinion tentatively to begin every crucial sentence with expressions like it could be argued that, a case might be made that, or it is possible to hold that. And instead of indulging such civilised exchanges in an atmosphere of unruffled urbanity, here was a man who brandished his learning like a battle-axe and brought the weapon crashing down to cleave the sheep from the goats in the name of Almighty God himself. Well, the intensity and coherence of Lewis's Christian understanding provided one of the most formidable instances of Christian synthesis in our century, and it thrust Lewis into collision with the prevailing academic establishment. Moreover, it did not generally make him all that beloved of the ecclesiastical establishment either. Yet he attained an immense popularity, in the teeth of subtle denigration from liberals and modernists who want the Christian faith to be subject to endless amendment and modification. Well, this gives one pause for thought, I think. I've experienced packed churches and lecture halls in the States where people had gathered enthusiastically not to hear the latest attack on the faith, but to hear it stoutly defended. And I used to wonder... Why sheer solid orthodox Christian teaching seemed to have a status and a pulling power, which in this country it nowadays seems to lack. I say seems, because as Lewis's appeal shows, it may be that it, if it had a fair chance of a hearing, 
orthodoxy might prove popular over here too. But actually, it's viewed as rather dangerous. I remember a review by of the first book I wrote uh, about Christianity in education called Repair the Ruins, and I remember a review by a man who rose right to the top in religious broadcasting. And um, he, is, he, he said, this book is something full of memorable sentences or something. Too memorable. They might influence people. It was, that was the effect, that this thing might be dangerous, you see. There, there, there is this, uh, uh, this kind of hostility. That's why I say seems, because as Lewis's appeal shows, it may be that if it had a fair chance of a hearing, orthodoxy might prove popular over here too. But there is a tacit conspiracy here between media men and, alas, ecclesiastical and theological luminaries to project the novel and the heretical and to suppress the traditional and the orthodox. So, in trying to answer the question, what must be our response in the current situation, one can really only point to two lines of action. You can battle away on your own. You can join with others in organizations which give a kind of institutional support. I remember going in 1983 to address the annual conference of the American Christian Legal Association at Colorado Springs. Here were lawyers organized rather in the cause of saving people from lit litigation rather than the cause of serving their own interests. Um, a wonderful organization um, in which um, contacts are, are kept and magazines run, cases explored. Um, well, I suppose most of us these days need this kind of contact with fellow Christians who are trying to live out their faith in situations which are comparable to our own. And in a sense, of course, this organization you are setting up has this in view. After all, few of us in these day, at this time are likely to be working in organizations or institutions which the Christian can find wholly representative or even supportive of his faith in action. I've seen the extremes in this respect in my own field in the educational world. Um, in 1987 I spent some months at Wheaton College, Illinois, um, as um, a visiting professor of English literature. Well, to an outsider, the college seemed at first in many respects to represent exactly what one dreamed of as the ideal academic community for bringing the Christian mind to bear on the world of scholarship and education and culture. Staff and students had their Christian commitment. They were by and large a worshipping, praying community. The chapel was packed every morning for half an hour and it held 2,500. Enough room for the undergraduate population, though not large enough for the graduate population too. The teaching staff individually and together examined their subject specialisms in terms of their Christian vocation. Well, it did seem to me that a Christian was in a position to do a better job in higher education in that sort of situation than in the sort of situation one is more accustomed to over here. Uh, committed Christians were concentrated in colleges such as this 
where individuals didn't have to battle in an alien or unsympathetic environment. I can't remember the exact words, but somewhere T.S. Eliot observed that an inferior man might do a better job in a good institution than a good man could do in an inferior institution. Well, in England, committed Christians are scattered thinly over the field of higher education as of all other fields. They have their contacts with fellow Christians in the same field through associations like universities and colleges, Christian fellowship and so on. But having refreshed themselves with such connections, they disperse to work in environments where the institutional framework and ideology give them little or no support. It's no problem. We do have colleges here, of course, that are officially Christian and that they were founded originally by the denominations for teacher training. But since the state has taken over the funding, there's been a tacit understanding that no rigorous creedal criteria should be applied in appointing teaching staff or in selecting students. I suppose naturally Christians may have tended to drift to these colleges. They could work in a tolerably congenial environment in that no one was going to challenge their right to affirm their belief. But um, this very environment is a product of the tolerant everyone to his own opinion liberalism and that liberalism would stand firmly in the way of the kind of institutional ideology and discipline which would ensure regular daily um, attendance at chapel. Well, I will concede that there is a greater open hostility to Christianity in secular higher education institutions in the States than there is here. This may be because here there is less overt evangelism to be hostile to. <coughs> I think we've privatized religious commitment more thoroughly than the Americans have. It may be that the more strident anti-Christian propaganda in, this, in the in the United States academic world is the direct response to the presence there of a more coherent and concentrated Christian force such as these colleges represent. Lewis used to say that you will know when you have struck home by the squeals you hear. It may be that the more aggressive anti-Christian voices in the academic world in the States represent the devil's tribute to the work that is being done. However, that may be. There is perhaps room for argument whether strategically the concentration of Christian resources is preferable to their dispersal. If Christians disperse themselves in secular institutions where there's an ideological free-for-all, they thereby perhaps help to reinforce the notion that Christians and secularists working in a field like education can agree about most of the important things about everything, in fact, except two little matters. Is there a God up there, and is there a life after death? Since the question whether there is a God up there is considered not all that relevant to what there is down here, and since the question of whether there is a life after death is considered not all that relevant to life before death, we can all jog along happily together. But of course, the educated Christian knows that this will not do. Let me quote a lecture given by T.S. Eliot. 
The moment we ask about the purpose of anything, we may be involved in asking about the purpose of everything. If we define education, we are led to ask what is man, and if we define the purpose of education, we are committed to the question, what is man for? Every definition of the purpose of education, therefore, implies some concealed or rather implicit philosophy or theology. Well, Christians and secularists have fundamentally different views of what education is all about. Education is the nurturing of human beings to fully human living. And the Christian notion of what constitutes human living is different from the secularists. Christianity has its own specific doctrine of what human life is all about. A matter of opening oneself up to God's grace and serving his will. So the Christian and the secularist here collide not on the periphery of their thinking but at the centre. They cannot walk hand in hand until certain out-of-the-way questions are raised at which point they part company. They start from different premises because they hold different doctrines of man and what constitutes his well-being and what effects his undoing. Well, these are the kind of arguments which have always been used in the educational field to justify the establishment of specifically Christian schools and colleges. Well, having spoken of an experience of one kind, let me speak of an experience uh, in the same field of a different kind at home. Let me recall an occasion when I went to speak to the Christian Union at Cambridge. It's long enough to go for the... There's no references to have no significance. In the discussion which followed my talk, one of the doms got up to explain how his Christian commitment affected his teaching. He was a geography dom. He described how his great chance for evangelism arose when he had to lecture about climate. Here was an area of instruction which called naturally for reference to divine oversight of human affairs. I gathered that God was uh, mentioned to supplement what he had to say about the more accessible and physical causes of the weather. Now, I could not help feeling that this was not the right way in which to bring the Christian mind to bear upon the subject. In a country where plans for holiday trips and outdoor feds are all too often marred by our unpredictable weather, it seems a poor evangelistic strategy to give God a special responsibility for these disappointments. Surely in this Christian, the an- in this country, the anti-Christian might be most encouraged to hear God made especially responsible for washed-out cricket matches and picnics. Dylan Thomas described how his fiercely atheistical father used to stand at the window of their home on a drab Welsh day and say, somewhat illogically, for an atheist, raining again, damn him. (laughs) Well, I cannot feel our national history being what it is, that the Christian ought not to be forced back onto what I call parenthetical proselytism. Individuals who work in secularist environments and struggle to put in a word for God deserve all the support we can give them. That goes without saying. But it seems to me that the really worthwhile support is that which comes from some kind of organised or institutional pressure 
which submerges the private appeal in a public commitment. After all, is not there something very ironic about the university don at Cambridge having to sneak in a bit of the gospel message between the anticyclones and the depressions. <laughs> the Cambridge represented by King's College Chapel was not established to fetter Christians thus. But the truth is that we Christians have lost the commanding heights of our culture. Yet we belong, in fact, to a nation into whose history was built seemingly unshakable institutional guarantees of Christian continuity. Witness our established church, our ancient universities, our public schools, and so on. And we have not lost these commanding heights by direct assault. We have lost them to a creeping infiltration by liberalism, by a curious psychological dread of commitment, and by a paralytic horror of decisiveness. Basic to the whole process of disintegration in the matter of faith and morals, is the corruption of our concept of truth. This is another aspect of the price we pay for the loss of the supernatural orientation. For the Christian, truth is supernaturally grounded. It is not manufactured within nature. Christianity imposes the given divine revelation as the final touchstone of truth. Secularism asserts the opinionated self as the only judge of truth. For us, truth is objective, not subjective. It is a revelation, not a construction. It is discovered by inquiry and not elected by majority vote. It is authoritative and not a matter of individual choice. Where Christian truth is concerned, there is no place for debates and votes, even in a synod. But we have seen popular thinking, even in the church, supported by the media-encouraged notion that the harvesting of random, round-the-table contributions, however disparate or ill-informed, is the proper recipe for getting at the truth. The idea seems to be that truth can be accumulated by aggregation, rather as the money is gathered in at the collection in church. In some places, even the world of education has been totally corrupted by the notion that healthy intellectual activity is a matter of ceaseless communal ferment, continuing dialogue, endless chitter-chatter in the assertive exchange of ill-pondered opinions. The virtues of silent individual study, patient, assimilative, reflective, have in some quarters been neglected in favour of the process of forever gathering together in groups to share spontaneous conversational throwaways, a process which frequently amounts to nothing more exalted than the pooling of ignorance. Well, techniques that lightly give priority to discussion over learning assert a primacy for the individual intuition spontaneously voiced that it is that is disquieting. And the idea that truth can be harvested from a range of such variously opinionated offerings is absurd. Moreover, it carries the presupposition that the individual is an isolated source of creative original thought, a presupposition which collides with the Christian awareness of dependence upon an inheritance of tradition and revelation. 
the church has in fact a great intellectual inheritance to hand on. Its members have to learn what that inheritance is. And teaching them what that inheritance is differs sharply from asking them all what they want and what they think it ought to be. There is something in the very nature of Christianity that resists the recourse to individual opinionatedness. It resists the personal takeover, the human itch for proprietorship, the desire to stamp oneself upon it and deliver it to the world with a guarantee of personal approbation. Confronted by Christian truth, you are face to face with something that has to be assimilated and grown into, not dressed up presentably for promulgation. This is one of those matters over which the thinking Christian is bound to feel alienated from, our popul from the popular thinking of the, the day. The assumption that Christian truth is something that has been fabricated to human design and can be adapted to meet the changing intellectual taste of succeeding generations has, of course, infiltrated thinking within the church itself. In some hapless areas, even bishops are not immune to its infection. <laughs> of course, heresy has always been with us. If it seems to be riding high at the present time, that is an inevitable concomitant of the decay in deference to authority which is decomposing our civilization generally. Yet surely there never was a time when heretics were more easily recognizable. We know the authentic Christian voice. It is the voice of one gripped by the authority of Christianity who wants it, allows it to make him what he should be. We know the unmistakable heretical voice of counter-Christianity. It is the voice of one who grips Christianity by his own authority to make it what he wants it to be. We are surrounded by pseudo-theological mentors who do not sound in the least like men so imbued with the Christian faith, its doctrine, its ethic, its spirituality, its practice, that they overflow with the richness and assurance of it. We are surrounded by pseudo-theological mentors for whom Christianity has ceased to be a matter of life and death, of conviction and action, and has become a field of speculation. It has ceased to be something you are decisively with or against, and has become a kind of mental plasticine which can be moulded into any shape you please in conducting a running commentary on current affairs. You will notice that when a heretical theologian whether academic or, alas, episcopal, turns to demolish creedal doctrines, he does not announce, I have ceased to believe in Christianity. Why does he not announce that? Because in his eyes, that would be like picking up a handful of powder and saying, I don't like the shape of this blancmange. The blancmange has no shape until it is mixed and cooked. And Christianity cannot be believed or disbelieved until the theologian has written his book and giving it, given it a shape. He treats the Christian tradition as religion powder, which the clever modern scholar can mix and cook into something to satisfy personal appetite. His thinking makes the mixture gel, and behold, the finished mould, the real thing, authentic Christianity, now at long last revealed and made palatable to the human race. 
And of course it turns out to be just that particular collection of views that he has reached at this moment, Anno Domini, of his changing pilgrimage. He'll be the first to admit, however, that his successor in academic or episcopal office will have to justify his tenure of the post by starting afresh and reaching a quite different conclusion. So these so-called theological speculators offer us a perpetually self-nullifying Christianity of which the only certain thing that can be said is that what it is today, it will not be tomorrow. Well, I ended my first talk by quoting a sermon of John Donne, illustrating the Christian mind at work. His congregation were addressed as members of a fallen race and a redeemed race, as partakers of a tradition and an inheritance extending from Abraham and Isaac, Peter and Paul, as pilgrims of eternity caught up in the cosmic conflict between good and evil. Is this the idiom we hear often today? Is this how men and women are addressed, even in the religious press, even from the pulpit? Alas, even in Christian circles, we hear echoes of the Vodish pseudo-ethic which solemnly declares that a man must become a person, as though he were in danger of turning into a cabbage or something. <laughs> that a man must learn to be himself, as though he were in danger of being metamorphosed into his mother-in-law. <laughs> that a man must speak and discover his identity, as though it were buried in the garden or hidden in the attic. The man must learn to accept himself for what he is, to find himself, to do his own thing, and so on. These cliches are treated flippantly because, even in their own terms, as secularist prescriptions and without reference to Christian judgments, they are totally evasive of real thought, utterly bereft of those objectivities in which standards and values, indeed even concepts of good and evil, are grounded. They exemplify the linguistic and intellectual permissiveness which matches our current moral condition by obliteration of signpost and destination from the pilgrimage of life. They are indeed specimens of tautology, of verbal incest, the currency of non-thought in whose articulation terms and concepts feed upon each other in a closed circle. But the Christian's objection to this new illiteracy touches deeper levels of revelation, of revulsion, than mere contempt for the morally moribund and the intellectually in inane. For in the Christian's eyes, these cliches are really the devil's tags, the catchphrases of hell. They virtually define damnation. For what is damnation except precisely the achievement of such selfhood as they recommend? The condemnation of a man to be exactly himself, nothing better than himself, a self untransfigured and untranscended for all eternity. What is damnation but that? The refusal to be born again. And what is the gospel call to live in Christ all about if there are no fallen selves to conquer, transcend and redeem? But just a lot of egos hanging about waiting to be savoured, explored and revelled in exactly as they irremediably and irredeemably are. What of the call to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? To trans 
to so transform ourselves, as someone put it, into so many little Christs. I believe it was Lewis, was it? That one always understood was the Christian vocation. There's no escape for us from confrontation with the nonsense of the age. We are not primarily up against any rationalist attack upon Christianity. By and large, thinkers are not trying to argue Christians into atheism by logical reasoning to which Christians can reply in kind. The old arguments proving the existence of God by reasoning from the evidence of nature, human understanding and human history are not being called for. Rather, they are being discredited in advance by positivistic thinking or bypassed by existential relativism. The various philosophical attitudes which assume that human life is something that we make up as we go along. One hears both at the popular level and at the middle-brow level, both via the media and in supposedly educated circles, a kind of pseudo-thinking which is deeply imbrued with subjectivism so capricious and relativism so fluid as to defy analysis and to render potential argument null. I quoted some characteristic specimens in my book where do we stand? Um, perhaps they're out of date now, but um, it seemed to me that uh, the trend has not changed all that much uh, in, in, in the past um, 10 years. But I'd, I'd been listening to um, a radio interview with a fashion designer um, and asked to account for the past successes in the launch of new styles. The, fashion designer had recourse to expressions like it was alive and it was relevant and it anticipated a trend well these expressions were voiced as approval noises without any awareness that for the logical mind they require some objective points of repose it was alive well Hitler was once very much alive <laughs> it was relevant well, should we say the 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 attack on uh, the invasion of Russia was highly relevant to the careers of many Russians and many Germans. It correctly anticipated a trend. Well, the Nazi propaganda against the Jews correctly anticipated the trend that brought the gas chambers and the um, mass graves. On what basis of sense and logic do we now choose to use the term alive, relevant and correctly anticipatory of a trend as approval noises rather than disapproval noises? You see, the habit of making judgment in such terms as it was good because, it was true in that or it was beautiful in respect of, now derided in some circles, compelled human beings to evaluate on rational grounds by reference to standards and with objective validity. What do we gain by cultivating a vocabulary of approval? He, it was alive, it was relevant, it correctly anticipated a trend which could with equal accuracy be applied to heroic saints or criminal tyrants, to acts of creativity or deeds of unspeakable horror. Yet we find criticism of the arts, for instance, riddled with the kind of approval noises 
exemplified there, which leave the rational mind aghast at the prevailing illiteracy of the media world. I heard some in discussion last week on new plays and novels. This was written some years ago. Did it tick? Oh, yes, it ticked. Well, a grandfather clock ticks, but so does a time bomb, I believe. <laughs> Did it say something? Oh, yes, it said something. Well, is it a breakthrough? Oh, yes, it's a breakthrough. Well, there's an expression. Space technology has made a breakthrough. Rabies has made a breakthrough. Did it disturb you? Oh, yes, it disturbed me. Well, conscience disturbs me. Cancer also disturbs one. Did it shock? Oh, yes, it shocked. Well, these approval noises can be heard any night of the week or read any day of the week by courtesy of the media, and they represent a total intellectual bankruptcy. Approval noises which could be equally applicable to the finest specimens of good or the worst examples of evil are evasive of rational thought. They are a part of the machinery of decomposition by which the values of Western Christendom are being eroded from within. There is a vocabulary of approval and disapproval now in use at the admittedly semi-literate level of current journalism and broadcasting, which exudes the emotive flavor appropriate to asserting or negating value and yet this vocabulary is in fact devoid of any genuine evaluative content at all. That interview about fashion which I referred to, the strongest approval noises accompanied such statements as, I want dresses that enable the wearer to say, this is me. I'm not sure where the dress, what the dress will be like that will prevent the wearer from saying, this is me, to disguised or something <laughs> clothes should say look at me I'm a woman well I don't know the clothes you'd have to wear to say look the other way I'm a cow or something <laughs> <laughs> woman, women want to go about being themselves what would turn them into something else don't know women want to be what they are well all these were great said with great feeling well, the reader will be able to supplement this list of examples with parallels from his own experience. An idiom has been become fashionable, which consists entirely of tautologies. Well, there's no intention here to apply heavy-handed criticism to habits of speech, which are flippantly or wryly used at a consciously superficial level in relation to such light-hearted matters as these of fashion. The trouble is that the thoughtless usage is symptomatic of deeper ills. For both of the verbal devices we have just illustrated, the evasion of objectivity and the exploitation of virtual tautology have in fact established themselves as modes of utterance applicable to graver and more momentous issues. We meet them even in, relig in the religious sphere. I took an example here. Yes, I have a church journal before me in which the writer proclaims to be a Christian is to be human, which of course says nothing at all since I suppose to be a murderer is to be human. I don't think an animal can be defined as a murderer. 
the crime is surely impossible. But the tautology having been attempted, it is easy by a series of false deductions to move from to be a Christian is to be human to this or that sin is only human after all and to be a Christian is to commit this or that sin without shame. The actual increase in this kind of irrationalism is worrying chiefly because the machinery of reason is being increasingly neglected in the pulpit, the religious press, and even in religious educational circles. Well, yes, um, I I would make the point, um, I think, finally, that uh, in a sense, to me, the sort of doctrine of creation, again, is is the sort of bulwark uh, against this kind of Nonsense, for it assumes that God made the world with a purpose, um, that there is reason and order in things, and uh, this sort of approval noises and disapproval noises that um, I've illustrated are kind of antithetical to the Christian notion of an ordered universe created by God to serve his good purposes. They're sort of congruous with the naturalistic notion of a kind of cosmic flux within which our human careers are so many limpid fluidities attaining casual significance only insofar as the topography of river and bank or the contact of fish and weed brings about in us a ripple of froth, a bubble here one moment and gone the next. Well you may think it in, in digging out those examples that um, uh, that it's time I read some more recent books and, and listened to some more um, up-to-date television programs. But So let me end with a rather more up-to-date specimen of this kind of thing um, we're up against, which in fact comes from an American book by a philosopher, Carl Frederick, who's had quite a, a book, um, for whom life is quite frankly a game. Now he is reputed as a philosopher. This is uh, a few lines from his work. You, underline, are the supreme being, capital letters. Reality is a reflection of your notions, totally, perfectly. Also notice that there isn't any right or wrong. It simply doesn't make sense to be unethical. You had the notion that communicating would be more fun and you created all the rules, so you're responsible for the game as it is, all of it. And it has no significance. You're it, capital letters. Choose. It has no significance. Choose. Life is one big so what? Choose. Letting go of the notions they told you about and creating your own, that's what aliveness is all about. Well, of course, what this suggests is that the Christian mind is now not so much up against a secularized mind, but a secularized mindlessness. Somehow one feels it ought to provide us with a wonderful opportunity. At least it seems to confirm the view that our civilization perhaps cannot outlast Christianity. Thank you.
Thank you very much indeed, Harry. What you were reading out there from the world of fashion reminded me so much um, of the kind of courses run by HMI and local authority advisors, which I've had to endure for the last ten years, on almost lay reader training in the Anglican Church, but I'm, I'm sure I've got it quite right there. We've got a time now of questions and comments, uh, both on what Harry has said in this session and in previous sessions, and also if you wish to widen it to the whole work of the Christian Institute and actually how you feel it can support you in what you do and the direction in which you feel you ought to be moving. So I'm going to throw it open for the next 20 minutes or so to questions and comments. So who would like to begin? Yes. Um, to what extent are we able to influence people by discussing issues? For example, I'm a student and um, yeah. it seems that I'm, I'm meant to be in an institution yeah. which promotes learning, yeah. but people seem unwilling to even yeah. question the issues. And uh, to what extent can Okay. I don't know, probably not everyone heard the question, but the uh, question is a student who says he believes himself to be an institution committed to the pursuit of learning, and yet many people in that institution appear to be apathetic and perhaps not interested in the pursuit of learning and the pursuit of truth. How can he influence that positively? Is that right? Yeah. Well, you may be able to do very little at the moment, but I mean, um, it may be something that can bear fruit for you in, in your life, long time house. I mean, obviously, um, there's a an extent to which it would be imprudent um, to be prickly and awkward with superiors and that kind of thing. I mean, I think there has to be a kind of... Um, Christian guile um, we have to have the wisdom of the serpent and it may be that you have merely got to build up food for um, future action in this respect um, that uh, you know you might sort of five years hence be um, involved in some such organization as this and able to say well this is the kind of situation we have I mean you're not necessarily in a situation in which um, you can do all that much except with your own personal friends um, and occasionally probing questions these are would it not be the case that in a situation where people are apathetic to yeah. maybe the best thing to be just to be a witness to the group is one thing that, that would attract their attention maybe to what makes them different to them and was not to necessarily <coughs> intellectualise no, I agree. Yes, insofar as you can, um, though you can't, in a sense, uh, well, you care. Someone must be careful in speaking about that. I mean, it may be that matters of poor, pure behavior and conduct, in fact, uh, exercise ultimately more intellectual influence than something which is directly intellectual to begin with. We have to accept that. But... Uh, I think one has, one has to sort of economise with one's resources, um, and um, 
<clears throat> try somehow to build up something for you. If some, everything comes in useful eventually. If I manage, you live long enough. <laughs> yes? Uh, where would the speaker see the roots of secularism? Sorry, who was speaking? Oh, sorry, yes, ma'am. Where do you see the roots of secularism? I think is the question, sir. Um, yes. you, you mean the sort of intellectual roots? or I mean, it's in original sin is really <laughs> the answer, I think. <laughs> the Garden of Eden, isn't it? They refuse the first dis act of disobedience. Um, it, I, I mean, that I, I try to suggest that by going back to Milton's Paradise Lost and to Eve. Um, the world not under the authority of, of God is uh, the secularized world or the secularist world not necessarily the secular let's be careful about that so that I consider the roots of, of secularism yes in, um, in the original sin in the fall of man especially in the last 200 years we've seen dramatic changes um, now obviously there, there are two revolutions the French revolution and the industrial and so forth there's Enlightenment, there's yeah. Darwinism. Oh. Are all these contributory? Well, or the do you Enlightenment see one, especially. Uh, do you <laughs> see one as, as the most important and the one we should concentrate against? Well, I suppose the Enlightenment um, especially. I mean, um, what is the point at which um, human beings cease to think of um, society... Um, I'm, I'm trying to bring to mind something that Lewis wrote about this, uh, where he defined the great split. He shifted the great split, uh, didn't he, to the end of the 18th century. Instead of saying the great divide is really the Renaissance or information, he said that um, there's a certain continuity um, in in. Uh, you know, in moral attitudes and in the sense of a divine creator, there's a certain continuity in um, civilization um, until the Enlightenment and the um, new individualism that, that came with the um, at the turn of the century. There. Do you think that capitalism and Christianity can can live in the same society? Uh, well, yeah, it, it depends. It depends the, rest what the, the rest of the audience restrain themselves. Enough. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I find myself very much lost. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that uh, an idolatry of market forces is as much an idolatry as uh, as, uh, as the Marxist idolatry, uh, but. Um, I take it that that is market forces is a sort of slogan. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that how how much we are really affected by this kind of issue. Obviously, there were great Christian um, impulses behind the founding of the welfare state. I think the sort of Christian socialism of last century and the Christian socialism of people like William Temple um, you know one, one can't but feel that they were onto something and wanting to weaken the power of, of capital and to um, establish a welfare system but um, I'm not enough of a, an economist to know how far um, 
one can go in, in sort of blaming capitalism itself as an ism. Hmm? David, do you want to come in? I, I, I noticed that you were straining at the lead. I, I was reacting to that. Oh, sorry. The, uh, the sort of tangential nature of the question I brought, but um, I, I suppose two things I want to say. First of all is that Christians are against any kind of ism. Aren't well, they? in a sense, yes. We're concerned about any kind of yeah. deification of a principle. But I would say that I think in our recent uh, experience, many of us live our lives actually in this country without actually coming into contact with the commercial world. Mm. And in fact, there's been very little said by the church about commerce, probably since about 1650. Mm. I mean, can anyone tell me about it? I mean, there are about two books, about three books that you can read. Yeah. on that subject and I think therefore um, my own view is that, that we have been somewhat swung away from the understanding of the need for market forces quote unquote in our Christian thinking towards centralist solutions uh, one of my friends once said the trouble with socialism is it's so, such a nice idea but it could end civilization yeah. I think that that's the kind of fear I have that there are many well motivated solutions to problems of society that are simplistic and that ignore the way actual commercial relations are conducted. And I mean, if you want that expounded, read Brian Griffith's book, Morality in the Marketplace. Which there's one copy out of the bookstore. <laughs> but we're against all kinds of isms, any kind of ism. We need to, you know, our antennae grow up, don't we? Well, this is different, but perhaps a little less dangerous. Can anybody hear this? <laughs> yes? Uh, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, in a sense, this uh, this uh, session today and the two one two weeks ago, uh, in both cases, has been a shadowy figure behind the speaker. The last time it was Francis Schaeffer, the late Francis Schaeffer. This time it's C.S. Lewis. My question uh, to Lewis is: uh, Would it be possible in this day and age when biographies of Lewis keep coming out? There are two in the Times Literary Supplement the other day. Uh, what would you say is you have inherited? Uh, positively from the thinking of Lewis and I don't Well, I think he was an adept at um, training the mind logically, uh, and I think he was an adept at um, um, challenging um, everything. Um, I'm not. Um, I, you're thinking more of personal contact with him, or of reading his books and so on. Um, yes, uh, it's very difficult. Um, you see, he could astonish you so much um, by things which um, were sometimes said, possibly just for the. The, the kind of sake of, of a challenge. Um, I remember once saying to him, um, and he said to me, you're really an Anglo-Catholic, aren't you? And this was in the 1950s. And I said, well, if I am, it's because I think the Anglo-Catholics are the only evangelicals left now. And he said, uh, oh, no, a few. And as the conversation went on, you see, now it seemed to be that seemed to be the reply of, of, of what I would call an evangelical. But as the conversation went on, 
I said, well, actually, I'd, I'd been recently to a church which was very spiky, very Anglo-Catholic, and there were things I really couldn't put up with, you see. And he said, well, what sort of thing, for instance? So I said, well, on Good Friday they had a liturgy and you had to go up to the sanctuary and, and, and kiss, kiss the foot of the crucifix. I said, well, now, it's the thing I, I couldn't do. Oh, but you should be able to, he said. The body must do its homage. Now, you see, that was his method. I dare say if I'd said something pointing in the other direction, he, he would have cancelled it out to show... Um, he was very good at training the mind by all kinds of uh, devices of that sort that uh, you had to see the other side so he was really very in, in a way very impartial in his tutorial technique and sharp, sharpening the mind rather than persuading you of anything of course I mean a lot of people have, have presented a Lewis is quite unrecognisable to me probably students who met him later on when he'd uh, put up um, with a lot of flack and, and various kinds um, I mean I knew him only as, as very friendly and generous and um, easy going um, as a tutor always trying to get something out of you and then if there was a possibility of twisting it around, yes it did so um, but funny, I remember um, I remember and this this being represented, I remember once uh, he'd uh, I'd written an essay on Mallory and he thought this was very good, oh he said that's, that's an alpha, it's very good well, forget that I met him Ten years later, he said, I remember an essay you wrote on Mallory. <laughs> so I sort of said, oh, yes, as though Mallory were not in my thoughts. You don't mean to say you've stopped reading Mallory. Well, <laughs> you see, he was going to have a kind, of, a kind of dialectical interchange even about that. I mean, that was... And, hey, it was very easy. I had a terrific sense of humour. I remember once I'd been writing this thing, I'd already put in print this story, but I, <coughs> he'd given me Andrew Cowley to work on for a week, this 17th century essayist and poet. He's probably important as a, an essayist, but I'd read through a great long ep biblical epic of his called The David Days. It's a massive thing, several times as long as Paradise Lost. And I was reading my essay to Lewis. This was the usual system. We went and read the essay to Lewis. And I sort of embarked on a critique of this poem. And I saw Lewis sort of rocking with amusement eventually on the couch sitting opposite me. And uh, so eventually I looked up and he said, You don't need to say you've actually read the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, Yes, every word. He said, Cook think, he said, you must be the only person in England, perhaps the only person in the world. David? Yes, can I just uh, make a comment that, uh, following on from that, because yeah. both, I mean, Francis Schaeffer and Lewis clearly were people yeah. who um, had a particular gift I mean, Schaeffer came to the fore at the time of the sort of Jesus people and the drug culture, and he rang bells 
with those people. And Lewis was obviously brilliant in terms of his literary style, among many other things. But the thing that um, I think uh, needs, surely, to take our attention is the fact that actually what these people say does get such enormous assent. And, um, I mean, a lot of things you've been saying... um, that you've probably read that book, The Closing of the American Mind by Bloom. Which, reviews of it. Which, well, no, but there again, when it, these books like this come out, yeah. you know, people say, isn't this tremendous? Yeah. And, um, I mean, a lot of the things you've been saying this afternoon, I was unfortunately not here this morning, but it seems to me everybody, masses of people actually agree with this. But we yeah. end up in this country with nevertheless a kind of paralysis, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is caused in part I'm sure, through the educational system and the media at the moment, which means that a lot of good people just give in when they're in kind of collective groups and don't stand up and say their bit. Would you like to comment on this? Because uh, secularism in this country is not atheistic secularism, it's a sort of theistic secularism where there's no kind of public reference to God and truth in the ways you've been talking. Yes, but it's chiefly a matter of apathy. I mean, uh, I... I mean, I accept absolutely everything you say. Yes, uh, people respond with enthusiasm, um, and that's that. And they say how right you are, but uh, then they say, what can we do? And uh, you were expecting me this afternoon to tell you what you can do. I don't know what you can do, really, uh, but I I accept your diagnosis. Uh, I think that is true. Um, One can write a a book and have it enthusiastically received. It doesn't mean to say to make a blind bit of difference in practice anywhere so far as one can see um, yeah I mean we can just go on awakening minds like this and, and hope for the best what else can we do I mean you know one has to leave it in God's hands <laughs> I find it very difficult to be neutral um, yeah. but, but I just David do you want to con- just, um, I mean I, I, I think this is really our problem yeah uh, but I, I just think it is very important that we get a greater level of confidence. And I mean, um, that where we are, I mean, it comes up in, particularly in the social work field, um, that what we are needing as Christians actually to understand the situation, but then actually to, to sort of stand up for their corner in a minority of one in situations, to actually inject a new kind of assumption. I, I think what we've got to change in our whole culture is some of these assumptions. and. I think it's individuals like meeting rooms like this on Saturday afternoons in the middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> 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 who actually, I mean, I believe this is, you know, we've got to do it or else no one else will. What would the Bishop of Nowhere say about that? There are things happening um, in, in this respect in the States, you know. I mean, there's, there's a, a, a great. Um, Movement said I attended the first meeting back in 1980 of, of something which has developed into called what's it called the something for alliance for faith and well, I can't remember it now but uh, this is is a, a body of combined body of Roman Catholics and Protestant evangelicals are all convinced that the sort of it's at the centre of their things that they're really together and that uh, they've got to do something about. Uh, um, the secular world today. They, there, there was a conference in, in Ann Arbor in 1980. I think there's been a conference there every year since. And that first one produced a book called Christianity Confronts Modernity, which is 
full of good stuff by people who are, you know, sort of um, in academic professorial positions and so on. Uh, and um, uh, right, right at the two extremes, Roman Catholic, if you call them extremes, and Protestant evangelicals. There's a man called James Hitchcock, Hitchcock at um, is the University of St. Louis, um, who, who's written about this challenge of modernism in, in a... Oh, with terrific force and clarity. Um, now, I know this is just writing and talking again. I don't know where it leads, but I, I feel somehow in this country we ought to have... Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about the, the Roman Catholic community in, in this country, whether there is, is the sort of intellectual spine that uh, you know would provide uh, some possibility of coming together. But I do think we, we, pro we want something trans-denominational. I say trans-denominational because inter-denominations come to mean such an awful sort of blur of nothingness, really. There's a shower uh, of hands uh, going up. Um, uh, sorry. Um, um, Brian, yeah. Brian first. Brian, um, I, I want to just throw this open and really right. asking the question about our own response. Um, and is it possible that we've actually incorporated a split personality as Christians? Because when we talk about response, we are talking about conflict. We're talking about touching on things in secularism which are deep-seated, strongly held. And we're talking about sparks flying. But on the other hand, I feel as an individual that I've taken in to myself in my conversion such an overwhelming picture of Jesus meek and mild that I'm in a constant state of self-criticism if I stand up in conflict, the sparks fly, and immediately, both from outside and also from brothers and sisters in Christ, that is not very Christ-like. And I wonder whether we need to take a better balance on the view of who Jesus was and how he conducted himself and begin to give ourselves some confidence about when it is actually permissible to do things that people won't like. Nick, is that a response to yeah, that? I, mean, I, I quite agree with you. I mean, we see Jesus speaking mild in the temple, overturning the tables of the, uh, the money changers and of uh, intervening very dramatically in what he saw was... Uh, wrong with the religious establishment uh, in his time. Um, and I think we do need to respond as individuals. And, and, and we, all of us, uh, those of us who are different, as we said, secular activities need to, I think, respond within that. We've actually got a number of opportunities that have come our way more recently, particularly, for instance, in, in education. We can respond by becoming parents, governors, or, um, gov or other forms of governors in schools, for instance, as Christians, putting a committed Christian view uh, into the way our schools are running. Um, the particular way I've done it is, is involved with local government. Well, I know from the fact that I've managed to get elected, it's actually not that difficult to get elected in local government. And more, <laughs> more committed Christians in local government would, would, would actually um, allow us to, uh, I think, be rather more forthright in our defence of our faith and to, to really make people realise that there, there was actually uh, a, a dramatic biblical and Christian uh, Challenge to, to secular society. I don't think I need to. Um, no, this is. Well, there was a hand up there. 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 There was a hand up 
in some way. It may actually flow naturally out of a secularist position. Mm. Yes. Because if everyone yeah. is right, then you've got to be pretty unreasonable to have an argument. Yeah. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And uh, therefore, we, we are disabled. And I think that the Christian gloss, actually what we are experiencing in the church is Christian gloss on that secular thing. And I don't think a hundred years ago, I think people would have been totally baffled by our fear of conflict and drama. It's, but it's very endemic culturally in Britain. Mm. Uh, you don't see it, I don't know if Mr. Lyons would say, but I would see in the United States, there's a much greater ability to confront, uh, which doesn't have to mean, you know, waving arms and doing it like the French do it. In a rational way. Now, we seem to have lost that ability, and we've got to get our confidence back. We've got to be able to do it without feeling we're doing something sinful. Yes. Um, can I ask a question um, really for practical advice? Um, we, we, we mentioned the, the problems of being in a minority as a Christian, and you mentioned the advantages of a place like Wheaton College, which was entirely Christian and you felt the advantage of that in, in developing a Christian mind. For many um, people, there's the option of either, uh, uh, for, for professionals, of going into practice in an area which is entirely Christian, or going into um, um, joining in with, with people who are not Christians. And as a doctor um, who hopes to go into general practice, I have the option of going into, well, choosing or hoping to go into a practice of only Christians, or joining with other doctors who aren't Christians. I wondered what your advice would be as the way forward, whether it's better, in view of the difficulties of practicing and living as a Christian, to join with a group of like-minded people and to thus um, avoid sort of conflicts that could arise, um, or else to, to go into the more difficult and perhaps situation in which one might eventually get dragged down of um, joining in with a group of different people. I think there is a lot to be said at this stage of things for, for getting together with like-minded people because uh, mm. the difficulties are so enormous and the strains are so enormous of, uh, and, you know, of being up against it on your own and uh, you have to think of how your own resources can best be used in, in life. This is a rational and uh, prudent thing to um, bear in mind, yes? Yeah? Brian? I'm going back to the idea of conflict. I don't want to stop this. Okay, bit. sorry. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think, if I may chip in there, it's a very real dilemma. And yeah. The same issue in education. Yeah. I mean, do you, as a Christian teacher, um, go to a Christian school where, where, where all the teaching stuff are Christians, or do you, yeah. as, the, as we say so lightly, you be salt and light in a situation where it isn't like that at all. I'm not sure there's any one answer mm. uh, which is absolute for everybody. Uh, I mean, clearly there is something to be said initially for having a very secure base uh, which to become strengthened and so on. But also we do need to, mm. to go out there and redeem the unredeemed there situations as well. There's aspect of the decision that has to be made. Are there not other factors involved yeah. as well? Well, it's the relative importance of that factor is one. one. Oh. I, I, can, can I take someone who hasn't contributed? Can I just follow on that one? Yeah, sure, of course. Really, just to say, I think we all have to be very careful um, to remember God and the Holy Spirit in these sort of things. 
but it does seem to be that one of your problems is where does God want me now? Mm. Um, and that isn't a very easy thing always to understand. But that is where talking with other Christians, praying with other Christians, perhaps may help you come to that uh, right result. Uh, but I think you're right, it can be open. There are times when you want that education, so to speak, to continue into that practice for a time. The Lord may then move you out. Uh, but there are times also when he may feel you're strong enough and he wants you straight out into a combative situation. Thank you for saying that. I saw another hand. Yes. Um, can, can we really justify um, having, say, 20 teachers in one school or all happy Christians together and, and therefore depriving 20, 20 schools with having no Christian representation at all? Whereas those individual teachers can start Christian unions in those 20 schools and have dramatic effects. I've seen it happen. Yes, well, that's, that's the other side of the picture. Um, but a school is an institution which, uh, you know, is um, formally, uh, not just formally, but practically con conveying, you know, a certain understanding of life which uh, could be Christian or, or, or need be. I mean, it does seem to me if you have a kind of institutional authority behind you, um, it doesn't rest simply on yourself as an individual. You have a kind of, um, you know, I, we have to be careful that we don't import into Christianity the sort of um, individual as the sort of all source of all creativity and meaning and purpose. We have to be careful that we don't import this into Christianity. Um, I'm, I've just suggested, and I personally would, though I've not been in this Christian, but I, I personally I think would far rather working in an institution when I'm not always having to say hand this over as my opinion as my opinion as my opinion but as, as part of a kind of prevailing ethos and, and philosophy which um, has a kind of uh, which in fact conveys the proper nature of Christianity as something with a, a traditional inheritance and not just a a sort of collection of aggregates of individuals popping up and saying I believe in God's but uh, I'm not disputing what you say here. Just making the other point. I think you know, just just to, to comment on your picture of a of a school with twenty Christians all getting on happily together. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure that, that always fits reality. <laughs> Certainly not always true of the church. Is it Elizabeth? Do you want to say anything about that? Or? Elizabeth is the headmistress of a of a Christian school in Sunderland. I must say that I mean, it is a real dilemma. As someone who became the head of a school ten years ago, uh, which was, I think I would describe it as pagan, um, there were no Christians in it at all as far as I could discover. I mean, that is a very difficult position to find oneself called to be into. However, the situation is quite dramatically changed over that ten, ten years, and God does change situations, but it does require a certain degree of resilience and uh, an extra dosage perhaps of the Holy Spirit to actually survive in that situation. 
And we've, we've got to be absolutely honest about this. I have to say in my experience over the years, and perhaps I've been guilty of myself, that very often it's not always obvious that you have Christians on the staff of your school. They are silent when they ought not to be. I say this not in a judgmental sense, but as something we experience. Very often Christians are silent when they ought not to be. And it is not sufficient. It is a good first step. It is not sufficient to have simply a Christian union in the school and say, right, that's it. When all around you, and the curriculum day by day, the assumptions on which the geography and the history and the science and the mathematics aren't being taught is utterly anti-Christian. So there is a job to be done on a much wider front than simply, uh, and I'm not decrying Christian unions and schools, it's important, every school has one, but that's the first step of many. Yes, Brian. Representing a, a church school, uh, um, one of the advantages of getting your Christians all together is that uh, children of other faiths, for instance, uh, Muslim children, will come to a Christian school in preference to a secular school, um, which of course raises another question about the other faiths in our country, which is what I was wanting to get onto, um, and that is that our reticence as far as conflict is concerned, has been highlighted, I think, in the last few years by the coming into greater prominence of other faiths in our country, and that would now include uh, Jews, certainly includes Muslims, that in the church we do seem to have lost heart uh, and gospel in conflict terms and standing up for what we believe in the face of very strong challenge, particularly from Islam, one that's growing in our country and one which unless we get our act together will find us very much wanting um, so it's interesting that our enemy if you can use that phrase is not a secular one only but a religious one and I think uh, that's particularly found the church at sea as to what we really believe and it's a call to get our act together isn't it mm. Yes. I'd like to marry that last uh, comment to uh, something that's smouldering in my mind uh, from David Gonton at the back here. No, no, the phrase, the need for market forces. I would posit that if we are in conflict with Islam, Islam in the matter of market forces would win. And I would suggest that the whole concept of the need for market forces is anti-Christian. I would like to enter the list with David Walton and be absolutely diametrically opposed to him on it, conflict if you like, uh, on the basis that uh, the Bible is very explicit about it's more blessed to give than to receive. You cannot serve God and mammon, and many other texts that are more than proof texts uh, combating the whole idea of competition. The Bible, if it is anything, is about sharing and interdependence not sure elimination I'm sure there's a food for a, a long long debate that we, <laughs> we can't do justice to in the next three or four minutes uh, I, I'm anxious to I agree with everything that he says actually do you? I don't yes <laughs> 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 I'm not sure you talk <laughs> no. we're not talking about either or we're talking about both and right. I think that's very important 
Uh, one of the things that I've, I've drawn out of what you've been saying today, um, I've drawn sort of encouragement from what you've said. And I think uh, one of the things that's come across to me particularly, and it's been encouraging, is that um, the role of a Christian is, is not to leave your brain somewhere else, you know, when you're being a Christian, that the actual the two are compatible. Um, and one of the things that I found quite effective in terms of um, pursuing some of the things you've been talking about is playing the fool. Actually, playing the fool can be quite effective. Like, uh, I mean, I caused uproar to a meeting with the Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> see, we have a broad spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> which, which was, you know, devoted to a very articulate exposition about the value of revolution. I caused uproar by saying, well, why have a revolution? Now, nobody else asked that question, which was one of the begging to be asked. Now, I mean, you know, I, I laid myself open to be pilloried and, and made to look, you know, people looked at me in a very sort of smelly way. But um, I, I was full of, I suppose, I would say it was righteous anger, that coming back to the comments made by the, the young chap here about students, that very often um, people can be drawn into these situations because they have, uh, they are seeking for something. Um, and what, what I find most detestable about Satan and the way he works is that he, he, will, he treats people as fools, you know, and people will sit there and be treated as fools. And sometimes it takes a Christian to stand up and be what in the world's mind is a fool in order to point out to people that they're having the wall pulled over their eyes, you know. And I think that's a very important witness. And, I, you know, I think a lot of what we said today is, is about that, is that people shouldn't be duped. I mean, I agree with that absolutely. I mean, there's all sorts of... In the educational world, uh, those of you who are in that will know that one of the current wisdoms was to, to give to each child a record of personal achievement and, in the jargon, to always say positive things. And then you ask the innocent question, and in the case of this child, is it positive to say... I wouldn't recognise him because I haven't seen him for two years. Um, and that kind of thing. It seems to me is a, is a positive remark, but it's not the kind of response they're looking for. And I think that role of asking the innocent question and being as wise as serpents and gentle as doves and, and questioning the assumptions uh, is a very important one for Christians because very often these people, I mean, the whole edifice is based on nothing. And by asking a few innocent questions, it can be demolished. Isn't it time that we got away from the idea that as Christians we're an embattled minority? Um, I'm going right back again to what you've said and to what our uh, young friend in France said. Um, we are so often afraid as Christians, and certainly as students, to actually get up and speak and state positively what we believe and know to be the case. Um, I had the great uh, good fortune of being able to have two bites at the educational cherry and was able to go back and take a degree just a few years ago and was appalled at the difference in uh, 20 odd years in the, the stand of the academic staff who simply stated there is no God and uh, this sort of thing. Now, because I was not in any uh, position of feeling inferior to them um, in, in any way, which the students are, um, and wasn't in a, a position where the degree mattered in uh, getting a, a job at the end, I was able to stand up and say, but, you know, this is your assumption. 
why make these statements and found that very often when they were challenged they simply crumbled um, you know because they, they have no basis for what they are saying very often but uh, you know I think it's time that our young people